Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. For those keeping track, um, the as, as promised, the state of Wisconsin said that they were going to expand the group of people who were eligible to get their COVID vaccines to include people with various types of pre-existing illnesses. And Mike gave a, a partial list, um, kidney disease, a COPD, cystic fibrosis, Down syndrome, heart conditions, hypertension, immunocompromised, obesity, uh, sickle cell disease, and, and something that I, I think perhaps affects a lot of people, type 1 or type 2 diabetes. So um, if you are if you are a diabetic diagnosed either type 1 or type 2, you are now, and I think if they haven't announced it already, they're going to be announcing it very soon, you will be allowed to get your shot. Now, again, I don't, I don't exactly know how they, they work the, this out. I mean, if I... And, I don't know how you prove, for example, if you have a type one, if you're if you're a type one diabetic or a type two diabetic. I, I don't know how you, yeah, how you prove that necessarily. If you sign up for one of the vaccines, I don't know if it's the honor system or whatever. But regardless, that that's the big expansion right now. Another group of people that are going to be allowed to uh, get the vaccine. So. Uh, again, and I'm one of these people, and we're going to talk about this a little in a different context a little bit later on. I'm one of these people who think that in, unless you have a real reason not to, uh, that is that you're allergic to things or you've had allergic reactions, I, I think you, um, I think it's just good for people to do that. All right, let us get started. It is a return to the welfare state, and I think it is a bad idea that we will come to regret. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the, the so-called COVID relief bill. Now that it is passed, and it's going to be signed by the president on, on Friday. A, a lot of people in Congress, a lot of Democrats are, are acknowledging what people like me have been saying for the longest time. This isn't a COVID relief bill. I mean, yes, it, it helps some people who, who've had or been affected by the COVID pandemic, but that's not really what this is. This is one of the largest, quote unquote, anti-poverty bills since Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society. And it is a complete and total return to the welfare state. You know, back in in the 60s, as part of the Great Society and the Lyndon Johnson anti-poverty programs, what we did is, is we had the government set itself up as big brother to start taking care of people because, well, you know, we, 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 we want to help people out. Everybody understands that. What it did Going back to the Great Society and these programs is it created a generational form of poverty. Not only didn't it help lift people from poverty, but it essentially locked people into poverty by giving them little incentive to try to better themselves. And you had generations of people who stayed on the dole. That is essentially what we are taking a major step back to. And it's interesting. I'm reading the pieces like in the New York Times with relief plans. See, they're not even calling it like a, a COVID bailout thing. With relief plan, Biden takes on new role, crusader for the poor. And they're talking about how this plan that's implemented 
Yeah, it's going to indirectly help some people who've been impacted by COVID. But as we talked about yesterday, a lot of the people that are getting these benefits have never, never been, haven't been affected by COVID. They didn't lose their jobs, didn't have, you know, any sort of loss of income. And then if you look at a lot of the stuff that's in this so-called stimulus package, what you see is it has nothing to do with, with COVID. It's all about giving people money. Here are some of the highlights. As we've talked about, you have the direct checks. Americans are going to be receiving, if you're below $75,000 in adjusted gross income as a single person or $150,000 for a married couple, you're going to receive a check of $1,400 per person, including for every child. So if you've got a family of four, you're going to get 5600 bucks. thank you, from the taxpayers. So, all right, that's good. Then there, as we've also talked about, there's the tax credits for parents. So what you're going to be seeing is that you can claim up to $3,600 for each child under six. You can claim $3,000 for children ages six to 17. And what's going to happen is instead of having to wait to claim that on your taxes, you're going to get that money in a monthly allotment. If you fall into a certain category, it's just going to be sent to you in the form of a monthly check from the government. Well, it goes on and on and on, but those are some of the highlights. So what, what you have here is essentially a system where you're going to be sending a whole boatload of money to people. Well, you know, what's, what's wrong with that? Let me share something that's in the Wall Street Journal today. According to calculations by the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, a Massachusetts family of four that had an income of about $53,000 before the pandemic and has one parent out of work stands to receive more than $22,000 from this package. A single individual in Tennessee who's unemployed and used to earn about $25,000 could receive as much as $15,000 from the bill. These families would also be eligible for more help to pay rent, afford health insurance, food stamps, Medicaid, etc. The United States has about 40 million people living in poverty. Nearly 13 million of them are expected to be lifted out of poverty, according to the bill. Okay, so the idea is we're going to send all sort. We've got people that are living in poverty. We're going to send them all sorts of money in the form of at least in the stimulus payments, a, a one-time sort of payment. But for like having the kids, you you get this sort of in, per, per, in perpetuity or as long as it lasts. And the idea is, isn't this a great thing? We have lifted people out of poverty by giving them money. Or at least we've lifted them out of poverty for a year by giving them money. But of course. We, we haven't prepared them to you know, go back to work. We haven't given them skills. And we're giving them money without requiring them to do anything. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I understand as, as a goal, giving people money, boom, here, we're going to wave this magic wand. We're going to send you tens of thousands of dollars. And then we're going to say you're, you're no longer in poverty. At least for, for this year, you're no longer in poverty. But if, if this is ultimately the system, and if the system is to let's build this stuff in, let's give people money, and let's keep giving people money, are we really doing people a favor? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Bill Clinton 
for whatever faults you want to say Bill Clinton had, and Lord knows there were many, Bill Clinton recognized that the great society, the welfare state, didn't work. And he made all sorts of efforts to end just the dole, saying, look, we got to find a pathway for people to work. Tommy Thompson, when he was the governor of Wisconsin, his greatest accomplishment was really kind of doing away with the welfare state and saying, we're going to provide a safety net for the people who are hit the hardest. But that safety net is not a hammock. We need to recognize that if you're going to help people long term, what you have to do is you have to give them an incentive to better themselves instead of just sitting around and being compensated for doing nothing. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Make no bones about it. We we are in the effort and in the guise of let's help the less fortunate. We are about to start. We're, we're going back to the Great Society. It didn't work in the 1960s. Why do we think it's going to work now? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I, I don't argue that at least short term, you lift certain people out of poverty by sending them all this money. But, but that's, that, that doesn't, that's not a permanent fix. Now, some of the things that they're trying to do are intended to be a permanent fix. It's not a one-time thing. The stimulus payments may be one time, but for example, the, the whole, the child care credits where we give people thousands of dollars and we send it to them on a monthly basis, that's only built into the law for a year, but the Democrats have already said they, they want to make this a permanent sort of thing. If you don't think that this is a start to a return to the great society welfare state, you, you're, you're not reading the tea leaves and you're not listening to the comments that are out there. This is exactly what this is intended under the guise of fighting poverty. That's all well and good. Yeah, you give people tens of thousands of dollars, you lift them out of poverty, but at some point in time, then you create the dependency on those government payments. Bill Clinton thought it was a bad idea. He was right. Tommy Thompson thought it was a bad idea. He was right. Let's start with uh, Tim. Tim, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. You're absolutely right. It is a failed idea. If you look back at the numbers, from what I understand, when the Great Society started and the war on poverty from LBJ, we have transferred something like $22 trillion from one group to another in this fight, and that's not poor, but the levels of poverty have stayed the same. So I'm thinking they're believing that because America's memory has become so short, people don't remember the 1960s other than yeah. Woodstock partying and free sex for everyone. <laughs> so if you just if you if you forget about the policies of them, they're going to forget the failures of it, and that's what they're I think they're hoping to count on to put this old idea through again. Well, right, and and, and look, and I understand it, it has an appeal. I mean, I, I get these texts saying, "Oh, you're you're just this heartless guy. Don't you care about people?" Yeah, yeah, I do, but I I'm old enough to remember, Tim, when we, when, we, when we tried this and we created this, this generational dependence on the government that doesn't really benefit people's lives. What it does is it traps them in this cycle of, of poverty and dependency, which actually gets them nowhere and turns out to be counterproductive. And it's, it's something we've been fighting against for the last you know, 20 or 30 years. And now it's just back to the future, but not in a good way. And the other thing we have to remember, though, too, Jeff, is with all that money transfer being transferred, how much of that is actually getting to the people they're claiming to help and how much of it is going for social workers, uh, you know, people with all the all the bureaucrats that are going to be employed as a result of that money. And when and if they're lucky, the person that's 
right. supposed to be helped gets what maybe twenty cents out of the dollar spent on it. Well, I mean, there, there's there's actually there's a lot of that that's built into the the program as well. I was just focusing on the direct checks that are going out. I was focusing on the the tax credits for the parents that are are going to be there and how that number has bumped up substantially. But yeah, I mean, there if you look at the breakdowns, there's all sorts of other things that are going on. You know, money to the states, including some of the states that have you know shown a lot of irresponsibility with regard to spending and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and, and this is all under the guise of never letting a good crisis go to waste. So we sit there and we say, okay, we've got a problem with the pandemic and COVID. Everybody understands that. And there's some people that have been adversely affected by it. Fine. So let's bail them out. Okay, all right, I get that, but then let's affect, let's do this for everybody. I mean, there's a lot and a lot of people who are going to be getting stimulus checks, for example, who don't, were never impacted by COVID at, at all, but, but they're going to be getting the money. You know, we talked about that yesterday. And I guess I, I just look at this and I say, okay, here, here's the deal. I'm um, Jeff. The people who voted for Biden are getting exactly what they voted for. Elections have consequences. They do have consequences. A- absolutely. And what you're seeing is that using the, the, this COVID, the, the whole idea of we need a COVID relief bill to, take on and fundamentally change the way we have been dealing with poverty programs over the course of the last couple decades. It really is a return to the future that that's it's we're just going back to the future um jeff this stuff didn't work in russia it shouldn't work now well you know jeff as an aside i'm a single retiree with a small pension well under the seventy-five thousand cutoff for the stimulus check but because i chose to convert a portion of my ira to a roth last year money i worked hard and saved to embrace my whole life I will receive nothing. Um, yeah, that's that's the case. In addition, I'm reading about all the health insurance subsidies in the package, expansion of Obamacare, etc. Meanwhile, I'm paying $800 a month for insurance. I'm starting to feel like a fool for saving and living below my means my entire life. Well, there there is... There is definitely an element of that that's out there. Jeff, check out the Facebook group, Capitalism Kills. This is exactly what this page is teaching, especially our young adults, that the government should be providing for its people, and those of us who work should be working for everyone else who isn't working. I came across the page accidentally, and it nauseated me. Well, that that that, that is this idea. And if you argue against it, you're told, oh, well, well you, you hate poor people. Well, well no. Don't hate poor people. It's a question of how do you benefit people who are less fortunate in our society? Do you do it by creating this permanent welfare state? I've told this story before. Back back in another life, I'm, I'm doing I'm doing depositions in some law in this case, and I'm I'm talking I'm deposing a woman who was involved in I forget whether it's an automobile accident or something like that, but she was in her fifties, and I asked her. Um, she was single with with a couple kids, and I asked her, you know, when her last job was, and she had never worked. She had never worked her entire life. And then I ended up deposing her daughter, who was in her 30s. Daughter had never worked her entire life. These were people who had been on the government dole their entire life. And that that's what the system allowed in the interest of we're going to help people. I'm sorry. I don't think that is the way long term by creating a government dependency that you help people. So, yes. Some people are short-term lifted out of poverty because they're getting a bunch of money from the government. Okay, that, that's fine for this year. All right, what about next year? What about the year after? What about 
two or three years from now, because one of the things we also know is that once government programs take come in, it is almost impossible to get them to, to go away. And one of the classic examples is this child care credit thing where we're sending all this money to people who have kids. And I acknowledge it's only a year, but this is going to be an election year issue. It's going to be, oh, th- those evil conservatives, they, they this money that you're getting, that you really like getting, well, they want to take it away from you. How terrible is that? Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I am waiting for a good explanation as to why people who have been vaccinated, gotten both of the vaccinations, and then sat out whatever the, the time is, it the 10 days or the two weeks or, or whatever that is, why it is that they shouldn't be able to resume completely normal activities. Now, if you're listening to the program yesterday, it, I, 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 uh, Anthony Fauci, and I'm, I'm not as anti-Fauci as, as some people are. At the same time, I, I think that he's been wrong about a lot of stuff, and I think he undermines some of his credibility by constantly going on television, never turning down an interview, and then saying things, even within a couple days of each other, that are inconsistent with, with that. And the more inconsistency that you put out, the more difficult it is to get people to you know follow different recommendations. But yesterday was not one of Dr. Fauci's finest moments. He goes on CNN, and they, they ask him on CNN, Doctor, explain why, if somebody has received both of the vaccines, you know, and they, they've waited that time period, explain why it is that they shouldn't be able to travel. I mean, if, 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 what is the issue? And he hemmed and hawed and just said, well, the CDC is looking at this, but couldn't come up with a good explanation. Well, in today's Wall Street Journal, there, there's an opinion piece from a this doctor who's been writing about this before. I think it's the same doctor who a couple months ago said, you know, I, I think we're going to be closer to herd immunity by, by April as opposed to, you know, next January. But it's an interesting piece that I think raises some, some fundamental questions. Let me, and I, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I sent out a, a link to it. But I, I want to share a piece with you because I agree because, candidly, if we want to encourage people to be vaccinated, we, we have to tell them what the goal is. We have to realistically show them what the goal is. And the bottom line is, if you have been vaccinated and you've got this degree of immunity, is there really any reason why that person can't travel, can't have contact with other people? And, and I think more and more, the, the answer is probably no. All right, so here's the commentary. Um, COVID prescription, get the vaccine, wait a month, return to normal. The CDC claims to be following the science, but its advice suggests it's paralyzed by fear. Okay, now this is the article. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have lost a lot of credibility during the COVID-19 pandemic by being late or wrong on testing, masks, vaccine allegation, allocation, and school reopening. Staying consistent with that pattern, this week, three months after the vaccine rollout, the CDC finally started telling vaccinated people that they can have normal interactions with other vaccinated people, but only in highly limited circumstances. Given the impressive effectiveness of the vaccine, that should have been immediately obvious by applying scientific inference and common sense. Part of the new guidelines are absurdly restrictive. For example, the CDC didn't withdraw its advice to avoid air travel after vaccination. A year of 
pre-vaccine experience has demonstrated that airlines aren't a source of spread. A study conducted for the Defense Department found that commercial planes have HEPA filtration and airflow that exceed the standards of hospital operating rooms. The guidelines do approve of vaccinated people meeting with low-risk, unvaccinated ones, but only with people from the same household and in a small private setting. So much for restaurants, birthday partings, and weddings. Um, an unpublished study conducted by Israel showed that the vaccines by both by Pfizer showed um, that the vaccination reduced transmission by 89 to 94 percent and almost totally prevented hospitalization and death. Immunity kicks in fully after about four weeks from the first vaccine dose. And then you're essentially bulletproof with the added safety of wearing a mask indoors for a few more weeks or months, a practical necessity in public places, even if not a medical one, since you can't tell on site if someone's immune, there is little a vaccinated person should be discouraged from doing. And it goes on in this tone. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We have been told for a year to follow the science. And I understand that the science does, in fact, change. I, I know a year ago we were told you don't need to wear masks, and the science changed, and I appreciate that. You, you get more information. But given the fact that we are told that the vaccine rate and the success rate, you are, in the words of the, the doctor who wrote this, you're essentially bulletproof. Um, once you've had the both doses of the vaccine and once you've waited. So given that, and I think it's also just as a practical matter, you know, people are going to wear masks for a while longer. But why is it that people who've been vaccinated shouldn't be able to interact with other people? Why is it that they shouldn't feel comfortable going to restaurants? Why is it that they shouldn't feel comfortable traveling? And the answer is, I, I don't think there's any reason. <laughs> I don't think there's any reason at all. And if we're going to follow the science, does science doesn't the science need to reflect reality? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Once you get your double vaccinations and you've waited the appropriate time, you know, after that, are you are you going to start resuming your, your normal life or are you still going to be reluctant to travel or reluctant to, you know, interact with people? And if so, why? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I'm not talking about, you know, not wearing masks in stores and things like that. I think it's it's probably a good step. The businesses are still going to require you to wear masks and things like that. But from the perspective of you having to worry about contracting it or passing it on, where where is the science that says that after you've been vaccinated, it, it can happen? And if there's no science that suggests that, shouldn't we be telling people about that? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. And again, if you want to see this piece, it's in the Wall Street Journal today, but I, I have it, I, I, I've linked to it on my Twitter account. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. But, but here's, here's kind of how they wrap up the piece. Uh, some experts selectively appeal to common sense when it comes to using discretion. Uh, Anthony Fauci said it was common sense to wear two masks at once. I, too, will invoke common sense to answer the big question so many are asking. What am I allowed to do after I've been vaccinated? Once a month has passed after your first shot? Go back to normal. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Chris in Madison. Hi, Chris. Hey. I love the show. love the topic. Thank you. And um, I just, you know, <laughs> listening to the whole thing, it seems like 
trust the science is so overused. You know, it's, is it trust the research? Maybe trust the statistics? But, you know, they keep going on and on about trust the science so that science, science is trying to figure something out. And once you've gotten there, that's yeah. to me is science. It seems like nobody knows what's going on. And if they would use words like trust the statistics or research and actually follow them, I mean, you know, I, I heard a statistic where more kids died of the flu this year than they did of COVID. You know, if that's true, I yeah, have no idea. But well, I, I have no but, idea. But yeah, but again, I, right? You we I mean, thanks. I guess see that this is this is the point. If this and see this is why. By telling people, well, we're not we're not giving you the okay to travel, for example, or we're not giving you the okay to, to go back and go into restaurants. What you are doing is you are discouraging people from getting the vaccine because there's a lot of people out there that, that are just on the fence about the vaccine. And I, I hear from from you all the time. And it, it's whether it's concerns, you don't trust the vaccine, you think it's been out too soon, whatever, whatever. All right. All, all that's well and good. And now if you've got, for example, the CDC saying, well, even if you get it, we, we can't tell you that you should be able to go back and live your life normally. That that just feeds into this reluctance that some people have to get it. And if we're going to follow the science, you know, show me the evidence that suggests that fully vaccinated people shouldn't be allowed to, to travel and to go into restaurants and things of the like. Jeff, my husband and I will be fully vaccinated by the end of March. We will celebrate with a dinner out and purchasing airline tickets to Seattle to see our children and new grandson. Um, how is the going, economy going to recover? if we don't stop moving. Uh, Jeff, if the goalposts keep moving, no one will ever listen to the CDC ever again. But th- that's that's the point. And again, I understand why why advice changes. And, and that's why I'm, I've, I'm not been one of these people to beat up on the CDC for originally saying no masks and then the science changes and they, they figure, okay, now you need masks. I, I get it, the science changes. But in this particular situation, when, when you say, all right, if people, if we say that it's a 96 or 94, whatever the number is, percent, you know, um, protection, explain then why you're telling people that they can't travel or they can't go back to restaurants or things of the like. And there's no good answer to that. Uh, Jeff, in two weeks, my wife and I are due for her second, in two weeks, my wife and I are due for her second shot after the two-week waiting period. So to speak, for the vaccine to become effective, my wife and I plan on going back to restaurants and maintaining our normal life activities. We don't mind the mask mandates, but we've been holed up for an entire year, not going to restaurants or avoiding crowds. Yeah, that that's it. And look, the, the mask stuff is going to be with us for another month or two months or, or or who knows in, in Wisconsin? You know, who knows how long that's going to be? And 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 I'm not saying, you know, that just because you've got the vaccination, just ignore the mask requirements or things like that. It's it's fine. Put up with this for a little bit longer. But as far as not feeling comfortable living your own life, I just I don't think there's any reason for that. And if we're supposed to follow the science and the scientists are telling us don't do this, they should be able to articulate a clear reason why. And, and they're not. They're, they're not doing that because the science doesn't support where they are. Let's talk to Paul in Illinois. Paul, you're on WTMJ. Hi, uh, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. I have to agree. I don't think the, the term, uh, you know, trust the science is applicable anymore because, you know, they told us not to get together for Thanksgiving or Christmas or New Year's or any of the other holidays, you know, Halloween. And yet we really, how many super spreader events were there really? 
you know, people have to figure out, do they want to live in reality or do they want to live in fear? There's other communicable diseases out there. People will always get sick. Right. So, you know, they're, they're making us feel like, oh, my gosh, if we, if we go out, we're not going to get sick if we follow their advice. But their advice so far statistically hasn't really panned out in a lot of cases or a lot of instances. Well, it, it, and there's all sorts of examples that you can point to. And again, I, I don't want to thank, thanks for the call, Paul. I mean, I don't want to turn this into a debate about masks or no masks. But, for example, in, in California, where they have had very, very strict mask rules since pretty much the beginning of the pandemic, and they've been aggressive enforcing it, uh, you know, California has had major outbreaks. So does that raise the question, does the mask really work or not? I mean, I, I, I don't know. But, right, you, you have that information. You know, we were told, you know, don't, don't, don't go and be in close contact with people. And then you had during the summer, you had, for example, all the big the social justice protests. And you saw people, lots of whom weren't wearing masks, walking shoulder to shoulder at these various demonstrations and shouting and screaming and yelling. And then it, they didn't become super spreader events. And so then it's, well, maybe if you're outside, it, it's not this factor. There, there's a lot of stuff that I acknowledge that we don't know about this. But the big picture is if we want to inspire people to get the vaccine, nations you have to be giving them consistent information and you have to be i think up front with them and i do believe right now that you've got some people who are unduly alarmist i think you should get the vaccination i don't think covid is anything to fool around with i think people should get the vaccinations when they're eligible i haven't been eligible yet but under these new guidelines i i will and as soon as it opens up i'm gonna see do what i can to to get my series of vaccinations because i think it's a Good thing. Now, as I've said before, I had a mild case of COVID in November. I've got antibodies. I'm really not worried that I'm going to get it again because th- there's not too many examples of reinfection that are out there. But regardless, want to be safe, get the vaccination. But to say, all right, well, even after you've got the vaccination, we, we don't think you should be interacting in restaurants and stuff. You-, you have to be able to give a really good reason, I think, why, if that's going to be your position, and they don't have a good reason for that. Um, so, you know, here's the, the idea. Um, if, if you're going to try to argue that people, for example, can still carry it, even though you've been vaccinated, well, th- they should come out and say that, and they should present data to suggest that, but I don't think there's too much out there that does that. Bottom line is, I, I think the CDC needs to get its act together, and they need to be honest and upfront and stop being alarmist. If these vaccines work as well as they appear they work, well, then what we have to do is we have to say, hey, you get your vaccines, you're gonna, we're going to green light you to return to normalcy, not this well, you know, maybe you can get together with somebody, but only inside your house and only another couple and only if they've been vaccinated. If that's going to be the position, all right, you better show where the science is to justify it. And candidly, I don't think the science is there. If you want to read this article in its entirety again, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. The hypocrisy of this is stunning. For all the people who were rightly uh, appalled when that Access Hollywood tape um, first surfaced during the 2016 presidential campaign and you had Donald Trump who wasn't at that time an elected official who was on tape you know and he was caught on this hot microphone saying some things that I, I were really repulsive about women I mean just there, there's no question about it. all outrage all of these people particularly people on the left and a lot of people on the right saying Trump should just withdraw right away and that's the end of the campaign because this is so appalling all, all right all right, well, where 
Where are those people on the left who were so outraged about the things that Donald Trump said before he was president about now all these claims that are emerging about New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, stuff that that happened while he was either a government official or while he was uh, like working for the federal government or while he was the governor. If you haven't followed this, Andrew Cuomo and what tip what happens in these cases is and it's one of the things that I kind of use to. Uh, judge accuracy. Sometimes when you have somebody who's led a pristine life and you have somebody who says, well, like 30 or 40 years ago, this person did something that was awful to me. It, it's it's entirely possible that those those allegations are correct. But in trying to assess it, I always say, okay, well, I- is there anybody else? Are, are there other reports of this? And if, if there's not, I tend to think, well, okay, maybe Maybe they're just the recollections are screwed up or or whatever. But a lot of times when you have these allegations of abuse or whatever, it's not just one person. It's it's multiple people. And that's what's going on with Andrew Cuomo now. Uh, yesterday, another woman came forward, female aide, um, said that uh, Cuomo asked her to the executive mansion near the state capitol late last year, allegedly reached under her blouse and began to fondle her. Yuck. The aide is the sixth woman who has now come forward to claim sexual harassment or inappropriate conduct by the Democratic governor. And um, it, and you know, who knows? But now that you've had the, the first couple came forward, now you have all sorts of other women that are coming forward and saying, you know, the, the same sort of thing. Cuomo, it goes back to one of his accusers, 25-year-old former aide, who said he asked her questions about her personal life during one-on-one meetings, including whether she would like to have sex with an older man. I mean, when, when you have multiple women coming forward and, and making these reports, it, it does kind of indicate, at least to me, that where there's smoke, there's fire. It's not just one person making these claims, and now who knows where this is going to end. But again, the hypocrisy alert is you still have a lot of particularly national Democrats who are, are just, it's like, hear no evil, see no evil. And my only point is, what, what about the hypocrisy of this? You know, if it was wrong and if it was fair to condemn Donald Trump for these things that he was saying before he was an elected official, what do you do with a guy like Andrew Cuomo, who apparently is saying and doing these sorts of things when he is in the governor's mansion in New York? Just asking. Back with more in just a couple minutes. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Okay, Melissa. Would you help me out? I, I want to play Jeff Wagner's show Jeopardy here. Okay, Gru, you can participate in this as well. Okay, so the, the, the final Jeopardy answer is more than 22 a day. More than 22 a day. Do you know what the Jeopardy question is? And your answer has to be in the form of a question. More, the answer is more than 22 a day. Hmm. Do, 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 do. Uh, you, you don't have to answer if you what, don't know. What you know? is the number of times you laugh during a day? <laughs> that wasn't the first thing that came into my mind, but that was the cleanest. Okay. <laughs> All right. Gru, you want to participate? Uh, more already, than 22 a day. I already saw the answer on, on Twitter. Oh. Uh, oh, okay. All right. So you're going to, you're <laughs> so going to, all right. I will, I will you, bow you, out. You, you will pass on this. Okay. Well, no, Melissa, hopefully you didn't bet too much in the final Jeopardy round. No, the, the answer to the question of more than 22 a day, the question is how many cars 
since the start of the year have been stolen in the city of Milwaukee. More than 22 a day. Let's let that sink in for a minute. Not, not 22 for a week. Not 22 for a month. Not 22 for two months. Every day in the city of Milwaukee, 22 cars are, are stolen. It's just absolutely staggering. Um, and so if you if, if you want to see the story, a matter of fact, the, the, we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and the Journal Sentinel has a very, very interesting follow-up to it, and I, I sent that out on, on Twitter um, because they, they participated. They had they got to get people getting together in a symposium talking about about this, and it's an interesting story that appears in today's paper, and I, I sent a link to it. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620 and it's interesting because, first of all, it does something I rarely see done, which is talk about the perspective of car theft from the victim's there is this attitude in the criminal justice system that car theft is, and I'm not talking about carjacking. I'm not talking about going up and sticking a gun to somebody's head and, and taking the car at gunpoint. I am talking about car theft. You know, you park your car in front of your house. You park your car in a parking lot, and, and you come back, and it's gone. There is this perception that it is a victimless crime. That it's well, it's it's just a property crime, and you know, and, and some people have insurance, and yes, maybe it's a bit of an inconvenience, but it's no big deal. And what's really interesting is that this piece talks about people who have been victims of car theft, and and you learn what, what a big deal it is. The the invasiveness. I mean, first of all, it's just the psychological effect of of something that you that's yours that has been stolen by, by somebody and the fact that it, it what it one of the things it does is it damages your it, it damages your confidence. You're, you're always a little bit unsure. Can I, can I park my car? Is it going to be stolen again? And then, of course, there's the other very real consequence for a lot of people that they they don't have multiple cars. I mean, it's not like, gee, your your car is stolen and then, well, it's an inconvenience. But while you're waiting for the insurance company to deal with this, if you have you know theft insurance, while you're waiting for the insurance company to deal with this, all right, well then then you're just you're driving your other car. For a lot of people, they got one car. And that car they depend on to get back and forth to work and to take their kids to daycare or to pick their kids up from school or, you know, or, or go to the games. It's a, it's a huge deal when you are violated in that fashion. And that's something that's been lost, I, I think, a lot of times when we talked about crime. Oh, it's a victimless crime. Oh, it's just property. You know, well, it, okay, for many people, with the exception of their house, if you own a house, it, your, your, your car is your biggest in investment. It is your biggest asset. And you come out, you find that some punk has taken a crowbar and kicked in the rear window and gone in and stolen the car. And, and this, this story in the paper, to its credit, and it's well worth reading, you know, does highlight some of the, the factors and what this does to, to people who are victimized. Well, what's even worse, though, is that the system victimizes the victims. I mean, these numbers are absolutely staggering. As of March 8th, 1,576 cars, 1,576 cars have been reported stolen in Milwaukee. That is a 138% increase when compared to the same time in 2020. A 138% increase. Um, and one of the things that they acknowledge, for example, in the story, is one of the major frustrations is 
Many of these cars are being stolen by juveniles. These are juveniles that have stolen multiple vehicles, caused thousands of dollars in property damage, and in some cases injured people, but are not being held. So the, the DA is part of this uh, symposium. So they ask John Chisholm, they say, well, what, what's going on here? You know, you, you've got this epidemic of car theft. It's in some cases, it's repeat offenders. It's juveniles who are doing the same thing over and over again. They're stealing people's cars. They're causing thousands of dollars of property damage, and they're still out on the street doing the same damn thing over and over again. And, you know, Chisholm's response is, well, that's a determination that ultimately has to be made by the judges in Milwaukee Children's Court. And then he goes on to say, well, we, we think that they're reluctant. Some of these judges are reluctant to send the kids to Lincoln Hills because they don't like some of the stuff that goes there. So they turn them loose on the street to steal car after car after car. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. It is, in my opinion, way, 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 way past time to treat automobile theft as the felony that it is. And to decide that, you know what, we're sick of this. And if we catch kids who have, kids or adults, who have stolen automobiles, particularly people who have stolen multiple uh, automobiles, it's time to stop this mollycoddling. It's time to stop saying, well, we're going to put you on probation or double secret probation or triple secret probation. It's time to start looking aggressively at trying to wave these punks into adult court. It is time to prosecute people to the fullest extent of the law. And I'm not saying that everybody that steals a car necessarily needs to go to jail for five or eight or 10 years. But you know what? Putting them behind bars for a little while is, I think, what would be my phrase, a good first step. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I guess here's the bottom line. What, what am I missing about this? Because as long as there are no real consequences for stealing cars, criminals and juvenile delinquents are going to continue to steal cars. Am I missing something? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And if you have been victimized in this fashion, if you're somebody who's had your your car stolen, I'd love to talk to you about this because I, I think... This is one of these situations where the the court system is a complete and total failure in recognizing how significant this issue is, and it's getting worse. 22 cars a day, actually a little bit more if you do the numbers, stolen from the cities, from the streets of Milwaukee. 22 cars a day, we discuss in a minute. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Here's a text, Jeff. What a timely topic. Out-of-control car theft in Milwaukee. friend of mine just had his car stolen yesterday during the workday from his employer's lot in the city of Milwaukee. A few hours ago, the youth thugs who stole it apparently returned to the scene of yesterday's crime in the same vehicle, presumably to steal more today. They were driving so fast and recklessly that they went airborne, crashed into other cars in the lot, and then fled on foot amidst the mayhem they caused. MPD is currently on the scene. Um, but who knows if they'll catch the criminals. It is crazy. The danger out there must be curtailed. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's no question, you know, about this. Um, Jeff, uh, let's see. Uh, um, 
Let's see. Um, Jeff, I used to frequent a, a downtown restaurant, um, but I, I am afraid to park downtown. Another person saying, I used to like to go to Bucks games, but I'm afraid to park downtown because I'm afraid my car is going to be stolen. Yeah, and, and, and at one point in time, you don't want to encourage people to be overtly afraid of things, but th- these numbers are staggering. I mean, th- 22 cars a day stolen in the city of Milwaukee. And by the way, these aren't all situations of people who, you know, leave their cars, you know, unattended with the keys in them and stuff. But is it really getting to the point? Do you really want to live in a city where what you essentially have to do is tell everybody, well, you, you better go out, you better buy the club or whatever that is, so you can prevent the people when they kick in your rear view min- mirror, when they kick in your rear mirror rear, rear window that you can prevent them from being able to just drive away all right is that really the environment we want to live in and the district attorney says well you know this is our problem you know the judges don't don't slam people well you start by waving people into adult court and then you start by using your bully pulpit to identify the juvenile court judges who aren't holding these people accountable but the problem is juvenile proceedings are secret so you never know how many of these cars these kids are stealing it's just completely and totally out of control wayne in wauwatosa wayne you're in wtmj i agree totally with your points jeff that's where our starting point is the officers care about these cases they stop the stolen cars they present charges to the district attorney's office it's the district attorney's office in milwaukee county that's not charging the case if you ask the criminal where did you get the car or how did you get it and they actually tell you or lie, they're going to say, I bought it from a friend for $100. So they're not going to admit that they were driving a stolen vehicle. Um, The district attorneys aren't charging these cases. And you're right. Officers are not privy to what's going on in the juvenile courts as far as charges issued and everything like that. Or the general public. Right, or the the general public. So if you have 16-year-old punk who has been who's stolen seven, eight, ten cars, and they're they're not waived into adult court. The public never finds out about that, and they don't understand. They never even hear about this catch and release stuff that goes on until eventually the the sixteen year old blows through a red light in one of these stolen cars at ninety miles an hour and hits and kills somebody. Well, then then it's so serious. But then you all, you all wonder why. Maybe if we had stopped them the first or second time and had consequences, maybe it would have been a little different. At most, what's happening to them is they're getting a citation, a municipal citation for operating without owner's consent that they don't have to pay, right. and nothing happens with it, and that's what's going on. Right, and ex- right. Th- thanks for the call. You're, you're exactly right. And, and should we be surprised that when there are no consequences, and that is the honest-to-God truth, there are no consequences, no practical consequences in the city of Milwaukee for stealing cars, and that is why... You have a 138% increase year to year. That is why you have, on average, 22-plus cars stolen a day. That is why if you leave your car on the street in the city of Milwaukee, who knows whether it is going to be there when you come out again. And, again, I'm not talking about people who leave the keys in the car. I mean, they've got sophisticated ways to break in, steal these cars quickly, and not a darn thing is done. And there's apparently no outrage about this. And, of course, you've got the, the court system that views this, like I say, as sort of a victimless crime. Oh, it's a property theft crime. Well, tell that to the people whose lives have been upended by their their ride to work being stolen. Let's talk to um, Ron in Greenfield. Ron, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? 
Well, I'm a retired juvenile probation officer. In my last few years, I did intake at Children's Court. I just want to let your audience know um, that when a kid's arrested for auto theft, they're brought into detention. We do a medical screen, and then we uh, assess where they should be placed until the next day for court. There's a point system in place that I don't agree with, but the vast majority of the times, the kids, even on probation, even committing felonies, they go home. <laughs> they go to temporary shelter. And if you're a kid and you steal a car and you go to detention and you sit there for two hours while you get determined where to go, and you go home and you sleep in your own bed, well, you know what you're going to do? You're going to think, this is pretty easy. I'm going to go out there and steal another car and another and another. Same thing for residential burglary. That's another offense that you get arrested for, even on probation. The points don't add up, and you go home. Well, if you're a kid, like I said, I don't ever repeat myself, you're going to do that behavior. Now, there's a solution. Back in 2009, there was uh, a big rash of disturbances on, on the county buses, and people were getting brutalized and hurt, the old people. Well, they put in a system where if you get arrested on the bus and they put undercover officers there, they're going to be brought to detention, and they're going to be held, and they're mm -hmm. going to be held in detention until the next court. And then the judges kind of had a tendency to hold them for the next, with the next 10 days, you've got to have court if you're held. And then that had a profound effect in regards to, hey, if you're going to cause problems on the bus, you're going to go get arrested and be put in jail. Ron, my, my head, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I was listening to you talk, and my, my head is, is just ready to explode. When you talk about how a, a, a juvenile delinquent who is on paper, on probation, so he'd been through the system, an adjudicated delinquent already for, like, stealing cars, gets caught stealing another car, and then he's turned loose and he's back at home that same night. And we wonder why, we, we wonder why these kids keep stealing car after car after car. Exactly. Yeah. Fact, I, I brought this to your colleague, Eric Gilstad, and actually a reporter came to my house last week or two weeks ago. But evidently it's not good enough or maybe not profound enough to bring light to the public. You should. I could enlighten you a great deal on children's court and how we oh, deal yeah. with things. Well. People, people blame judges. I, I, I don't want to go there because it's all money. It's all regards to we spend 160000 to send somebody to Lincoln Hills or Wales in the past, it comes out of the county budget. So a lot of times we're pressured, uh, the judges are pressured not to spend because of the cost. No, but we have a facility with 120 beds in, in Wauwatosa where we could house these kids and, and put a dent into the... Right. Uh, and gives you comes constant. Ron, I'm sorry, i got to let you go because I'm kind of up against the clock. But yes, I, everything you're saying is, is yes, 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 yes. The, the DA's office has to get tougher. I know it is frustrating for the cops. The juvenile justice, uh, the, the juvenile judges need to grow a spine, and we need to hold people accountable. This cannot be allowed to continue. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. But one final text on the, the whole car theft topic that would be, it would be funny if it wasn't so serious. Here's the deal. Jeff, you're, you're right on. My car was stolen in Walker's Point. When I asked the police if they recover vehicles, they said, <laughs> they laughed. They said, nah, it's probably halfway to Chicago by now. 
Fast forward a month later, I received notices for past due parking tickets on my car. And we, we've talked about this before. There was a period of time, I don't know if they still do it, but you'd have the parking checkers that would write tickets on cars that had been reported as stolen, and, and there was no cross-reference. Now, I don't know if that's still the case. I forget if they changed it, but it really was insult to injury. Your car gets ripped off, and then you've got the bad guys that are illegally parking it, and you get the parking tickets. Anyhow, so fast forward a month ago, I received, a month later, I received notices for past due parking tickets on the car. I drove down to the address on the tickets, and there was my car. Better yet, I had to call the police. The car had to be towed to impound, and I had to pay $100 to get it out of impound. (laughs) It is kind of like, okay, adding insult to injury. It was a simple joyride for someone, but it caused me a lot of inconvenience and money. My story was simple and even sort of funny, but the real issue is the scenario you mentioned earlier. Sooner or later, that person who stole my car is going to hurt somebody or kill somebody when the thief is driving 90 miles an hour down the road through the red light. And that's... That is what you see over and over again. But the scary thing is, because the juvenile justice system decides to protect the little darlings, you you don't know. You don't know how many times they've stolen cars. You don't know what they've done in those stolen cars. You never find that out. I mean, you you want to just understand how screwed up this is. Let's go back to that Mayfair Mall shooting. You know, last November, you have this 15-year-old punk brings a gun into Mayfair Mall, shoots up the place, shoots eight people and they're going to treat him in Milwaukee as a juvenile so he, he, you're not going to find out we don't know if he's done anything else before what he's done and you're not going to really find out what the disposition is it's just a joke and it would be funny except it's a joke that puts all the rest of us at risk all right let us switch gears what do you say group producing the show today and always let's antagonize some of the audience all right and he's looking at me saying, like, you haven't done that for the last hour and a half. All right, here, here is the deal. Joe Biden has not held a press conference for over 50 days. He is the longest president. That is the longest period of time in modern history to go without holding a press conference. All right. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I have to conclude. The only conclusion I can draw from that is that his aides are afraid that he is not ready to answer questions from the press. Now, I understand he's going to be giving a scripted speech tonight. Um, and I, but at the same time, this, by this time in any other president, or at least for the last like 15, I think, they have already addressed a joint session of Congress. They don't call it a State of the Union until after you finished your first year. But Biden doesn't have that schedule. He does have a televised speech that he is going to give tonight. But the idea of actually standing in front of the press and interacting, he hasn't done it. And candidly, I can't conclude any other reason for not doing it at this point, given, hey, you, 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 this, is, this is a big time for him. You've got all this stuff that's going on. You've got the wind at your back. The fact that he's not doing it tells me that I think some of his aides are afraid that he's not able to do it. And it's not just me saying this. Here's a piece, ABC News, of all people has a piece that they posted on their website, uh, let's see, just uh, just, uh, today. 
Biden not holding the formal news conference raises accountability questions. This is ABC News. Halfway into his first 100 days, President Joe Biden has yet to hold a formal solo news conference, raising questions about accountability with the White House under increasing pressure to explain why. Even as the nation deals with multiple crises, a deadly pandemic, and the devastating economic fallout, Biden has gone longer without facing extended questions from reporters than any of his 15 predecessors over over the past hundred years. The tough exchanges in such a setting can reveal much more to Americans about a president's thinking and test his explanations as opposed to what so far have been Biden's brief answers, often one-liner quips in the tightly controlled and often scripted events the White House has arranged to date. In contrast with former President Donald Trump, has, the contrast with former President Donald Trump has been especially striking, especially given Biden's repeated promises to Americans that he'd always be straight and transparent. The previous record was set by President George W. Bush, who waited 33 days before hosting a formal solo press conference. But that was more of an anomaly. Many others held them within a handful of days or a few weeks after taking office, according to an analysis. The White House last week pledged Biden would hold a news conference but wouldn't say when. All right, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this a big deal? And, and what is what is going on here that the president is now gone well halfway through his 100 days without holding a press conference and without making a joint address to Congress? 855-616-1620. Nothing to see here. He's too busy dealing with the problems of the country or his aides are afraid he might not be up to confronting the press. The fact that they've not had a press conference tells me that some people are concerned that he might not be ready for prime time. What do you think? 855-616-1620. We discuss next. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I think you're making mountains out of molehills. Well, all right. Then then this is the question. By the way, it's just not conservative talk show hosts that are asking this. This is now ABC News and the Washington Post. This is a big story that's going on about why Joe Biden refuses to have a, a press conference. And by the way, it's not like you're dealing with a hostile White House press corps. Okay, this is the liberal mainstream media. You know that there's going to be lots of softballs that are out there. So the question is, why would you delay 50 days if you were ready to do this? Because you know, again, it's going to be a friendly room. If nothing else, why don't you do this just to shut up the people that are, are now starting to say, what what's going on here? There has to be, at least in my opinion, there's got to be some reason why you are not having this press conference. And the only reason I can think of is, all right, they're, they're a little bit concerned with what he's going to do if you just turn him loose in an uncontrolled setting for 45 minutes and expect him to answer questions. 855-616-1620. What do you think is going on? Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. What do you think? Yeah, I think that there has to be something. Only because, I mean, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. But as you said, he's got everything going. Those would be marshmallows tossed at him. He has nothing to worry about in terms of the press. And considering his gaffes in the past, which there's several of them, I think his team is worried about it. 
Well, I just again, I just there, there's got to be a a reason for for making it's a, it's obviously it's a decision. It's a decision that is now starting to create controversy because, like I say, it, it's not just conservative media that's talking about this. The the it's now overflowed into the mainstream media, and people are starting to notice. You know, it, you you got to go back 150 years to find a president who's delayed a press conference this long. There, there's got to be reasons behind it, and if it's not that he's not ready for prime time, I guess the question is what would that reason be right and as you said you got abc and the washington post saying stuff i mean that speaks volumes to me well right no thanks for well and again because because the press corps is starting to to notice this it's getting to a point where you know especially for somebody who's promised the most transparent presidency in in history and look I, i don't i don't know what what is going on here but the longer this goes the more you have to think that there there is a reason behind it. And I understand some people say, "Oh, he's just too busy." Oh, for goodness sakes! I mean, for for goodness sakes, you're, you're too busy to prepare to answer questions. And 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 it's not just the COVID relief bill. I mean, there were decisions. You know, we we, we were we were lobbing bombs into you know what Syria. There, there's all sorts of questions that are out there. And ag- again, you hold a press conference, and in many respects, it, it's it's going to be a victory lap because he he's just so different than President Trump. The the media just is going to absolutely love. It. So it's not like you have to figure that you're going to have, you know, back in the the old Sam Donaldson days, where you know he's going to you're going to have somebody that's going to be going after him like a a bulldog, or or some of the interactions, the hostility that you had between like President Trump and and the media. It's not going to be something like that, Jeff. How long do they think they can keep him protected from the press as we emerge from lockdown? What excuse are they going to use for the next three years? I feel they are definitely protecting him, Jeff. I think Biden and his advisors have made the decision that there's no advantage to giving a press conference. Being silent won him the election, and so why change that? Well, yeah, I, I think there there is an, an element to that. It's like th- that was that was the strategy that worked in the campaign. And in fairness to President Biden, I thought he did a very, very good job in the debates. That was one of the questions, you know, is is he up to the debates? And, and I think he did a very, very good job in general and you could, we could argue about whether he won the debates or whether Donald Trump lost the debates. But, but regardless, I mean, I, I, there was nothing about Biden's performance at the debates that convinced me that he was not ready for the job. But the fact that they're unwilling to trot him out to answer questions, th- there's gotta be a reason behind that. I mean, doesn't there? Let's talk to Richard. Richard, you're on WTMJ. Yeah. Hi. How you doing? Today? Good. What do you think? Well, I've got a little different spin on it, to be honest. I uh, I don't have a problem with with us not seeing him answering questions on TV for for fifty days because personally, I was so sick of his narcissistic predecessor being on TV every day for so damn long. <laughs> I, I think it's a breath of I, I think it's a breath of fresh air, to be honest. So, well, I, I don't think, personally have a problem with it. Well, Richard, I, I, first of all, I, I don't disagree <laughs> to, to the extent that I, I think President Trump overexposed himself with his press conferences and with the the interaction and the things that went on for two hours. So if your point is, do I do I think that that President Trump went into overkill and the the the, the really the the kind of what I would use, I'd used to describe as kind of punching down. I mean, he, he'd get upset with some reporter for asking a question or writing a story, and I'm thinking, you're the president of the United States. You got to be bigger than that. So I, I I understand the the overexposure argument about Donald Trump, but to me that doesn't explain why. You know, when you have somebody who's got the wind at his back, I mean, everything going well. Um, I I think that it's fair to ask. You know, what's 
what's going on here, and is there a reason? Jeff, if you've watched him over all over the last few weeks, he loses his thoughts. They had to cut the feed off twice in the last week. Um, I, I think it goes on to say he can't answer questions without the help of a card or a teleprompter. Um, right. Um, there's, there is that issue. Um, Jeff, uh, let's see. And, and look, and I don't know what, what the answer is, but the bottom line of all this is if you want to have this issued, if you go away, it, it's real easy. You, you just you, you block this out, you come out, you answer questions for 45 minutes, and then all the speculation kind of goes by the side. Jeff, you know why they're hiding him. Um, I believe he's having cognitive issues. I, well, I, I don't know that, but if you want to dispel that rumor and that concern, it's really easy. Jeff, Trump didn't release his taxes like his predecessor. Biden doesn't do press conferences. What's the point? Well, fair enough. Remember all the heat that Donald Trump took for not releasing his tax returns. Oh, this is appalling. So here you have a president who claims to want to run the most transparent administration in history, and and he doesn't feel comfortable having press conferences. Okay, well, we we had all the speculation as to what was Trump hiding, etc. Remember all those arguments? And so now it's it's not a big deal? Well, I think it, 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 it is. But again, Biden can make this whole thing go away, just schedule the press conference, come out, dazzle people with his knowledge of details and his ability to explain, you know, why he did this and why he did that. And, and then the whole issue goes away. And then two days later, you schedule a joint address of, to Congress like all his predecessors have done, and that issue goes away. The fa- and and the, the, his political aides aren't stupid. They understand that. They, they get that that's the case. So the fact that they're not letting him have a press conference or that he is reluctant to have a press conference or make a joint address to Congress, that tells me that there's something else going on. Otherwise, you just you just do it, get the issue over, and move on. Time will tell. I wonder how this is going over in in City Hall. The the City of Milwaukee's health department has just been a a train wreck. And I don't think I'm understating things. It's been a train wreck for a number of years. They've been through various health commissioners. The, The current health commissioner is a woman named Kirsten Johnson who... Was was in Ozaki County in Washington County, and the, her 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 time there was very controversial. And she ended up leaving there, and she's the new city of Milwaukee health commissioner. She's she's the one who it was her brainchild to not allow tailgating at Miller Park. And we talked about this before. And I don't mean to over do over overdo it, but it, it's it it is just it's a decision that's just flat out dumb. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, it's, it's just flat out dumb because you can't tailgate in the parking lots at Miller Park because of the, the health department's order. So what you can do is if I'm going to the ball game with three of my friends, I can pick them up. We can drive together in the same car. We can stop off at a bar and then ride a shuttle over together, you know, on, on the buses um, or 
we can drive to Miller Park, park in the parking lot, but we can't stand outside behind our car and grill out brats. It's a decision that makes absolutely no sense at all. And unfortunately, that's been the kind of thing that's been driving, I think, a lot of the stuff that the health department has done. Now, this is the same health department, and we talked about this yesterday, that's now hired this private process server to go out and to issue tickets or at least recommend the issuance of tickets that the health department can now come down on these bars. And we talked about the story. One guy who, who runs this bar gets a $3,000 ticket because some health inspector says, well, the, the tables are, are too are too close together. I mean, it's, it's nothing but a revenue grab for the city of Milwaukee under the guise of public health. So anyhow, this, this Kirsten Johnson, she's in the news today because apparently she's cleaning house. Milwaukee's new health commissioner has fired two top city officials, including a staffer who helped lead the push to declare racism a public health crisis, making the first in, making Milwaukee the first in the U.S. to do so and starting a national movement. Kirsten Johnson, who started her job as Milwaukee's health commissioner last week, on Tuesday fired both Lillian Payne and Griselle Torres, who were serving as chief of staff and deputy director of policy, innovation, and engagement. So, you know, she comes in and she starts cleaning house and, you know, getting rid of some of the other people that, that are in there. Now, I always believe that on the one hand, when you bring somebody in at the top of, of an agency, they have the right to surround themselves with their own people. I mean, I think that they have the right to promote the people that they feel comfortable with and things like that. But given all the turmoil that's gone on in the, the city of, of Milwaukee and the health department, this idea that, okay, what we're going to do now is we're going to come in and we're going to start cleaning house. And, and by the way, it, it's a couple of uh, women of color, you know, who, who are, who we're, we're getting rid of as, as well. We're just going to fire them and send them on their way. And we're not going to explain to the public why it is that we're, we're doing it just further contributes to the chaos and the disarray that has been that department for the longest time. And I guess, again, do you have the right to do it? That's fine. Will anybody be upset that she's done it? I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of other stuff, I think, that's going on out of the health department that people have every right to be upset about. But will there be an outrage among the members of the Common Council? You know, where's Tom Barrett on this? Yeah, again, no, nobody knows. Just like, where's Tom Barrett on the fact that you've got 22 cars a day stolen in the city of Milwaukee? Nobody knows. Back with more in just a couple minutes. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. All right. I'm feeling musical. No, no, I'm not singing. That's the deal I have. That's the deal I've had for all these years with management. But uh, there is a song you have perhaps heard. Uh, uh, Melissa, you've heard the song, The Eyes of Texas. You've heard that the eyes of the eyes of Texas are upon us. Yes. You're looking at me vaguely. Well, oh, no. I Once am. you hear I... this, you will know. Okay. Uh, okay. So the, it's the Eyes of Texas, which is the University of Texas fight song. It, it's, it dates in, back in history to 1903 when it was first written, and it's to the tune of uh, I've Been Working on the Railroad. But here, I want you to listen. I want you to listen to the lyrics because we are going to, there's going to be a test right afterwards. Okay, Gru, hit it. 
right. That is the eyes of Texas are upon you. All right. Kind of get you in the mood to get up and dance. Here's the lyrics again, if you couldn't follow along. The eyes of Texas are upon you all the live long day. The eyes of Texas are upon you. You cannot get away. Do not think you can escape them at night or early in the morn. The eyes of Texas are upon you till Gabriel blows his horn. All right, that, that, that's the lyrics. That's the song written in 1903. Jeff, why are we talking about this? Because there is a huge push to do away with that fight song. A number of people um, that the song's been around for 120 years. Some some players on the University of Texas football team are saying we think it's wrong for people to sing it because apparently, you know, just like the at UW, you've got like the fifth quarter and stuff and all that. And you've got everybody that does jump around. One of the big things at University of Texas football games is after the games are over, they, they the fans stand, the players stand, they sing the song. Several players have apparently expressed concern about the tradition of singing the eyes of Texas. First of all, believing that it was inspired by Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Now, of course, that the song wasn't written until 1903 when, you know, the, the Civil War, Robert E. Lee was long gone, <laughs> long gone by 1903. In addition, the concerns were that they think, well, maybe historically it was first performed at a minstrel show, which um, I guess they say it, it may it may have been. It's very very unclear exactly where it was performed. But these you know lyrics were devoted as a it's a it's a it's a testament and a love affair for for Texas. Okay, our number eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I I understand the cancel culture. We talk a lot of times about people who get offended by stuff. Is there any reason in God's green earth that a song like The Eyes of Texas, and we went through the lyrics and you heard it, is there any reason that that song should be canceled? And I guess the best argument that you could make is, well, it was written in 1902 or 1903, and it was performed, and the first time it might have been performed, it it may have been in a minstrel show type of setting. We don't think, by the way, they say, we don't think that the performers who did it did it in blackface, but we're not exactly positive because it was 120 years ago, but we don't think that was the case. But is there any reason for anybody to be offended by something like this in 2021? My answer would be no. If 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 there's something out there that you think a reasonable person could be offended by and we need to say you can't sing a song like this, I would love to hear that explanation. Otherwise, it seems to me that this is just another one of these examples of people trying to look for something in various traditions to be offended by. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in a moment. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I love the text on this. No, no, just no. Jeff, there is nothing wrong with the eyes of Texas. No, of course there's not. Jeff, why is it that everything is always getting overanalyzed? If you're offended by something, then just don't listen to it. Jeff, is it okay to be offended by people who are always offended? <laughs> That's, that, that is the interesting thing. I always describe those folks as the, the, the politically correct and the perpetually offended. And, and you, you see that. You see it playing out in Madison where you have the students that are upset that there's Abraham Lincoln. There's an Abraham Lincoln statue. And you see that with some of the people in Texas saying, well, we, we, 
we don't like this particular song, and gee, we, we think it's a tribute to Robert E. Lee, and, and it's not. It's it's not. It actually was a satire. That's the history of it. It was written by some University of Texas students in 1902, and it was a satire of a, of a catchphrase, apparently, that the president of the university used to use at that all that time. But the, the, the bigger point here is you have to have some degree of perspective and recognizing that, th- that there's real issues that are out there, and for every ounce of breath that people spend trying to cancel something like i don't know the the, the eyes of texas you, it, it's a it's moments that you take away from trying to deal with like the real issues that are out there um something like this you can you can have the argument you're not going to win it and it doesn't make the world a, a better place at all by saying well we should cancel the the eyes of texas gotta have some sort of limits on this all right want to switch gears I, I sent out a tweet earlier today that's gotten quite a response on on twitter we uh was it friday friday last friday had an opportunity to do an extensive interview with u.s senator ron johnson and one of the things that i pushed senator johnson on and my pushing him has gotten uh, attention whenever you get somebody that says you're, you're quoted in the nash in the washington post and it's always kind of like Huh, what did I say that would be in the Washington Post? But anyway, they, they did a story about my, my interview with Senator Johnson where I, I pushed him on his decision to, to run for re-election. And he, he hasn't announced, I mean, he had previously said he thought two terms would be it. He hasn't committed to whether he's going to run a, again. I, I pushed him on it, and he was very clear. He said, well, I don't think I have any rush to the side. And I, I disagreed with him because if he wants to run, Given the fact that he's got a target on his back, I, I think he needs to be in full-blown campaign mode, like starting right now. Given the fact that every time I turn on the television, I'm seeing some liberal group attacking him. And if he believes, and he does, that he's been treated extremely unfairly by both the national media and the, the local media, or the statewide media, well, he, he needs to be aggressive in countering that. He needs to be in campaign mode if he's planning to run again. If he's not planning to run again, I, I think he needs to announce that sooner rather than later to clear the way to allow whoever whoever wants to run as a Republican to, to start to run and allow people to start building their campaign organizations and raising money and doing things of the like. I, I, so I, I really do think it's a situation where given given what's going on, I think the senator finds himself in a position that my advice would be you really need to you know, do you know what or get off the pot and, and make that announcement and then just go and, and handle it. And whatever decision he makes is the decision he makes. But one of the things that's been percolating, as a matter of fact, I, I got a, a text that I responded to and my, my response w- was not, I guess, as thorough as it should have been. But the, percolating in the, the Wisconsin left is the idea of, of whether or not Senator Johnson should be recalled. Now, keep in mind, he, he's up for re-election if he chooses to run again in November of 2022. So, you know, what, what's that, uh, you know, 12, 20 months or so, whatever the math works out to be. We don't know if he's going to run again or not. It's very unclear under the law whether you can recall a federal official. In most states, the law is clear. You can't do it. Wisconsin, if you look at the statute, the statute does allow a federal official to be recalled. But the federal law, which governs senators and things like that, doesn't have a recall provision. So the question would be legally, 
um, even though the state law allows it, whether or not the federal law would preempt that provision of state law. I think, again, I think it would. I don't think you can legally, regardless of what it says in state law, I don't think that state law can override the federal law, so I don't think you can recall a federal official. I, I don't. But but at least it, it's an interesting legal issue that presents itself. Um, if, if you were going to start a recall, there would be litigation, and the litigation would probably take a year or two. And ultimately, I think it would end up in the Supreme Court to decide whether you could do that or not. I, I don't know how the Supreme Court would decide, but it, it's a law school exam. And I, I do acknowledge that it's an interesting question for a law school exam. However, um, that doesn't mean that there's not people out there who, who might be willing to do that. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I sent out a, a link to one of the stories about this. I think... Regardless of how you feel about Senator Johnson, whether you would support him if he were to run for reelection or whether you can't wait till November of 2022 to vote him out, regardless of where you are on that issue, I think trying to recall him at this point in his term would be a waste of time, a waste of money and a waste of spirit. And that's, again, assuming you can legally do it. And, and this, this does cloud the thing, because even if you started a recall petition, like I say, there would be a legal challenge, and it would have to go through the federal courts. I, I, I think the legal challenge would succeed to stop the recall, but I don't know. But it, it's going to take – it would take a long while. So it's not just generating uh, signatures. It, it's fighting this battle in court. We're sitting here. It's mid-March of 2021. Johnson, if he runs again, goes to – is up for re-election in November of 2022. All right. Is it worth it? If Even if you can start a recall, would that be worth it? 855-616-1620. And my answer would be absolutely not. What do you think? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. There is a movement afoot in the national left and in Wisconsin to try to – Recall Ron Johnson. Now, as I said a minute ago, there's really significant legal questions about whether you can do that or not. And it's a question of this federal law, Trump state law. My guess is it probably does. But that's a matter. Let's put that aside. Even if that wasn't the case, trying to recall a U.S. senator, uh, again, about 20 months before he stands for reelection, to me, if he chooses to run again, to me is most a waste of time, spirit and energy. What do you think? Let's start with Glenn in Sockville. Hi, Glenn. Absolutely. It's a total waste of money. Well, the man said he was going to run for two terms, and then he was going to decide if he was going to run a third time. You'd just be stirring up the pot again of getting polarizing the whole scenario of politics. That oh. is not what makes this country great. Okay, but see, Glenn, you, you, just, you just raised a really interesting point. Then if we, we – why, why do it? What, what is the purpose of doing it then, or even talking about it, or even trying to generate support for it, if it's all those things? Could it be maybe that that's exactly what some of the anti-Johnson people are trying to do? Just again, try to stir the pot, figure out a way that they can fearmonger and raise money and something like that? I mean, m- could this possibly be politically brilliant? That's the way but. I, I, I am not made that type of a person, you know, like I remember Mr. Johnson said that he was going to go two terms. I would like to ask the man personally at a town meeting or whatever, 
I would like to know if you're going to go for a third term. Yeah. No. Th- I would, no. I'll be honest. I'm sorry. Th- no. I mean, why? I think as I as I've said in my conversations with him, I, I think. I think given everything that's going on now, and somebody just sent me a text saying, hey, the election is over a year and a half away. Do we really have to put up with anybody running now? Give people a break from political ads. All right, well, to which my response would be, I, I, that, that sounds really, really nice. But the reality is, if you turn on the television now, Johnson is already the subject of a whole series of, of vicious attack ads. Oh, he's voting against the stimulus, and he doesn't care about little people and stuff like that. And and that's that's this is just the start of what's going to happen. And that's why my point is that Ron Johnson, admittedly, he's got a target on his back. He's the only Republican running for re-election who um, – only Republican running for re-election – um, who's in a state that Donald Trump lost. So, I mean, clearly got a target on his back, and, and there's no question that he has made himself, with some of his pronouncements and stuff, he's made himself a lightning rod. And I know the senator feels that he's been miscast in some of these things, but that's great. But I'm saying, no, if 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 he just decides to sit on his hands and wait, well, that's that to me is a recipe for disaster, because you already have opponents who've announced, including one that's at least very well financed. You might hear from three or four more. No, I mean, I whether you like it or not, th- this is a, a new election system season. But regardless of whether he announces he's going to run again or not, this whole idea of trying to stir up stuff about a recall, to me, it's less about do we think it's really worth a recall, and it's more about, hey, is this just another way that we can figure out a way to uh, motivate people to not like Ron Johnson? Tim in Fond du Lac. Tim, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Good afternoon, Jeff. What do you think? I'm not a big Ron Johnson fan, but I, I think a recall is dumb. And I, I also think that keeping him in the news, saying, you know, some goofy stuff every other week, I, I think that's just, just going to hurt him in the long run. So I, I don't think a recall would be smart. Mm-hmm. It, I don't think it was smart for Walker because it, it actually yeah. made people sympathetic to him. Well, no, that, you're right. No, that that was that, that was that was it. No, thanks for calling. No, you're you're exactly right. I mean, you want to talk about a huge backfire and. Look, during during the recall of Scott Walker after um, Act 10 in 2011 and 2012, what, what happened was th- that recall emboldened, I, I think, Governor Walker because he was, I think, the first governor to survive the, the recall election and things like that. And I would tell you, there were a lot of mainstream Democrats who thought the recall was a very bad idea because they, they thought it was very difficult to, to accomplish and they, they figured that, hey, if we do this and we lose, he, he's going to coast to re-election in 2014, and he did. And I think he probably would have coasted to re-election in 2018 were it not for factors including the backlash to Donald Trump and Wisconsin and things along those lines. But, yeah, that's the battle. I see. I'm just I am not a believer in recalls. I've said this before. Absent malfeasance or misfeasance. Back in 2001 and 2002, when you had the Milwaukee County pension scandal, I wholeheartedly embraced the recall of county supervisors and the then county executive. But but that was misfeasance. That was malfeasance. It's not just, hey, we disagree with policies. When we come back, we'll find out what Eric and Melissa have on their minds for Wisconsin's Afternoon News.